Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Gen Z GOP podcast. I'm John Olds, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mike Brodo and Ryan Doucette. Today, we have our first guest on the podcast, and our guest is Matt Lewis. Matt Lewis is a political writer, blogger, podcaster, and columnist for The Daily Beast. He was formerly with The Daily Caller and has written for The Week. Matt also sometimes appears on CNN as a political commentator. Matt, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. So I want to start today with a bit of a summary from a recent piece in the National Review by Kevin Williamson. And I'm going to just read a little bit uh, of an excerpt here. Burn it down has become a shorthand for the less easygoing kind of anti-Trump conservative. For members of the burning faction to see Donald Trump lose in 2020 would be insufficient. Their view is that the Republican Party as a whole must be punished for its energetic embrace of Trump and Trumpism. For some, such as the gentlemen of the Project Lincoln, that means not only actively supporting Joe Biden's presidential campaign, but also working to pick off congressional Republicans, especially vulnerable senators. The not burning down faction argues that this is an overreaction and that it is counterproductive inasmuch as taking down Lincoln Project targets such as Senator Susan Collins of Maine, would leave the Republican Party not only smaller, but also Trumpier. It would be easier to knock off the last New England moderate than it would be to take down Ted Cruz or Jim Inhofe. Surely, the not-for-burning-down faction argues the answer cannot be a Republican Party that is both politically weaker and politically worse than it already is. So that, that quote, that excerpt, kind of reflects a lot of what you've been talking about, Matt, so if you would, for our audience, could you just kind of explain what you've been working on talking about lately in this debate? Yeah, I think I kicked off this debate. I mean, actually, the Lincoln Project kicked it off when they ran an ad or at least created a video that um, didn't just go after Donald Trump, which I think a lot of never Trumpers are, are fine with, but went after his enablers, you know, these Republican senators and um I think I so, but I was the first person I believe to uh, to really talk about this and to say we shouldn't burn it all down. And now there've been pretty much everybody I think in the center right is weighed in on this, and and people are taking sides. Some people think you need to burn it down, uh, you know, destroy the village to save the village. Uh, Others of us think. that that would be unwise to uh, to give Democrats complete control over basically all the branches of government, you know, both houses of Congress and the executive branch. Um, and so I think this has become uh, a very interesting debate. And I, I mean, I can tell you, I think the context of it is really important. It, it seems very likely that that Joe Biden is going to uh, to win the presidency. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that, that you've seen people like me push back on the notion that we should kind of give him complete control and the Democrats complete control. If that were more a question, I I don't know that we'd be having this debate, but, uh, but here we are. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for providing context. Now I, I I'll hand it over to Mike and Ryan for any questions they might have for you and we'll go from there. Yeah. Before I weigh in on that debate. I wanted to ask a few questions from some of the articles about this, more on the 
party composition side. You know, the party has become a lot more populist. We use Trumpism as the ideology that really embraces all of those aspects. So a, a piece from Bloomberg, Ramesh Panuru says, most of the people who vote for a post-Trump Republican candidate in 2024 are going to be people who voted for Trump. Any competitive center-right party after Trump will by necessity represent substantially the same voters who put him into power in November 2016 and have sustained him in it since then. Any strategy for changing the Republican Party that fails to reckon with that fact is doomed. So my question here, Matt, is we've seen this complete transformation of the party and even the country. You know, We've seen pushbacks on trade on, in both parties, a more non-interventionist foreign policy in both parties. How do we reckon with this fact with the party going forward? Where do you see the party going? Do you see it still seeing these remnants of populism or are we going to see a complete reversion to a Bush interventionist strategy or something completely new? Any, any thoughts on that? Well, look, I think Ramesh is right. I mean, these politicians are, especially the senators, I mean, people like Cory Gardner, let's say, I mean, they, they are responding to incentives. They are responding to their voters. Um, who have decidedly taken a more populist, nationalist, nationalist tone um, and, poly, and even policy preference than I than I like. But politics changes. You know, twenty years ago, George W. Bush was was uh, he wasn't just the establishment favorite. He was he won uh, with a compassionate conservative message. And so, um, I do think that right now that we are in a moment where people. Uh, feel uneasy and afraid, and that has manifested itself in uh, the grassroots of, of the Republican Party being much more populist and nationalistic than, than I prefer. But I think Ramesh has a point, which is to say, um, ideally, what would happen is after Trump, if Trump is defeated and if Trumpism is basically um, discredited, by virtue of, of a uh, stinging defeat at, at the ballot box, then people may recalibrate. And um, I don't think we're going to go backward to the establishment, George W. Bush, Mitt Romney era. But I think what you could certainly have is some sort of a hybrid situation um, where you have uh, sort of a maybe, you know, a combination of, of, of a Reagan Bush philosophy that's a little bit more populist and a little bit more nationalist. Um, and I think the question is where on the spectrum do we end up, right? I think if you get a Mike Pence or a Nikki Haley as a leader of the party uh, or, or a Marco Rubio, then that's probably a party that I could live with. Um, you know, e even though all these people have have really disappointed me in recent years. On the other hand, if, if it ends up being like a Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton party, um, that's probably not a party, you know, that I that would probably be too populist for me to uh, to kind of want to rejoin that movement. But I think it's up in the air. And, and so um, although I do think it's very clear the Republican Party has problems, I mean, my book, Too Dumb to Fail, um, called this out in January of 2016 before Donald Trump had won a single caucus for primary. Um, so clearly this is not something that Trump, um, invented. I think he, he capitalized on, and this is a symptom of this problem. Um, but I think it's something that could be potentially worked out via reforms and rather than, than blowing it up and trying to start from scratch. 
Thanks, Matt, for your insight and awesome transition into my question that comes from your book, Too Dumb to Fail. Um, in chapter 11, How to Fix It, um, with it referring to the Republican Party, you have a section talking about growing the tent without burning it down. Um, and the quote reads, while Republicans simply must appeal to segments of the population that are growing, attempts to modernize the GOP into a brand that is capable of winning the 21st century also risks alienating loyal supporters. Sometimes this is unavoidable. But while the GOP must win more urban and cosmopolitan votes, Republicans would be foolish to mock or undermine their current base. So when I read this quote a couple years ago, I was kind of you know, under the impression that the Republican Party was not currently doing this. But as I look back now, it's a lot easier to notice that, yeah, the Republican Party um, had has been limiting its audience and its effect. So to your point with growing the tent without burning all down, how do how do you envision the Republican Party growing from here and how we can kind of earn back some of those votes? Well, I think it would... Um start with getting a standard bearer who is not Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump has really, if you tried to go out of your way to shrink the party and to alienate women, college-educated folks, uh, people who are suburbanites or urbanites, um, basically Donald Trump has alienated anybody who's not an older white male who lives in the country and the rural, in a rural area. Um, and so I think it starts with somebody who is a builder, uh, someone who is a uniter, not a divider. I mean, imagine if Marco Rubio and Nikki Haley had been, um, you know, president and vice president in the last six months with the coronavirus or Jeb Bush even. I wasn't a big Jeb Bush fan, but how, how would Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Nikki Haley um, have handled the coronavirus and the uh, police abuse and the civil unrest. I suspect it would have been dramatically different, both in terms of competence and in terms of the um, unifying rhetoric uh, that we would have heard from them. And so I think it could be some of it is as simple as, as having a, a better leader, um, to be honest with you. And I, I don't want to be simplistic. You know, it's like the great man theory of politics or whatever. But I, I do think leadership matters. And, and I think that for better or worse, um, a president is is uh, defines a party. And so um, there's, there's plenty of Trump's policies I don't like. But I do think that um, in terms of the Republican brand, a lot of it comes down to to his his kind of vulgarian tendencies. So, Matt, uh, do you think that there might be more to it than just changing the leader? You know, at, at, at our project here at Gen Z GOP, we talk a lot about how the Republican Party is not only, you know, flirting with this weird authoritarian populist kind of tendency, it's also kind of ignoring a lot of the issues that affect young people. And a point that we make often is that, you know, if if young people see the left talking about things like, you know, racial equality and, you know, inclusion and the environment and income inequality and a number of different things, they might reluctantly latch on to 
the left because they're at least talking about those issues. They might not be the solutions that they like, but but they're at least talking about it. And I think that a big a big part of our project here is to create a forum for Republicans and conservatives to bring solutions to those problems to the table and and have that that forum and discussion. So uh, where do you stand on on stuff like that? No, I mean, I, I definitely agree, agree. And I think it's a, um, a very valid thing to do. I think, you know, you could imagine, again, I, I hate to beat a dead uh, drum, dead horse, whatever the expression is. Um, I don't want to dwell on, you know, what might have been, but you, you could imagine a party with a Marco Rubio or a Nikki Haley, um, or even like a Scott Walker or a Bobby Jindal, that would have been you know, develop, Paul Ryan um, developing policy proposals that that were inspirational, that talked about talked about the right to rise and lifting people up, and entrepreneurism, and and also, you know, issues like um, like student debt. You know, that that came up with policy proposals that you know, the Heritage Foundation would help come up with and have like a conservative uh, alternative. Like, so I'm, I'm I'm down with that. I think it's important. Having said that. I think it's secondary um, to the larger brand and, and to the leader. And, and I'll just give you an example. I mean, if, if Donald Trump sent out Ivanka tomorrow to go to like American University and talk about uh, student debt, I think it would be pointless. Like, so the problem isn't that she's not talking about it. It's that, you know, A, there probably is no actual chance of really implementing anything. It would be transparently... BS. Um, and, you know, and B, I mean, I just think that like, even if they were implementing something good, like, so Trump did, you know, criminal justice reform. And um, I just think though, any good thing he does is overshadowed by the million kind of creepy <laughs> and bad things he does. So I think that policy is super important. And I agree. And I'm glad that, uh, that you're tackling this mission. Uh, I just don't think it will be able to resonate until um, conservatism has a better brand. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have that sentiment too, Matt. And I want to jump on this Gen Z policy discussion too, because I think they're very important for our mission here. So a big thing that we talk about in our talking points is right now, if you're a young conservative or just a young person center right, the political narrative on almost any college campus is of the political left. So what people latch on to is Trumpism. And, you know, that's the dominant narrative on the right. That's the counter narrative to the dominant one. But what we're trying to say is that it doesn't have to be that way. And it, it kind of inflates the support of Trumpism. So I wanted to touch on this David French piece from the dispatch to kind of dive into your thoughts. And, and then after I read these quotes, get your thoughts, I want to speak kind of my perspective on this burn it all down versus not doing it debate in terms of the Gen Z policies perspective, because the policies that are implemented over the next four to eight years are going to have lasting impacts. And we're going to feel those the most, right? We're at this turning point in the country. I don't want to say this is a flight 93 election kind of thing, but it's pretty evident that policies that are going to be put in place for us going into the workforce and everything are going to have lasting impacts. So let me just read two quotes from David French's piece. In, in referring to the burn it all down mentality, he says it's counterproductive for those of us who still believe that the conservative elements of the Republican Party provide the best prospects for securing liberty, 
prosperity and security of the American Republic. And then later on, he continues, moreover, let's also remember that policy still matters and it matters a great deal. It will make a substantial real world policy difference if Joe Biden wins the presidency and the Democrats win the Senate. They would understandably and rightly believe that the verdict of the voters went well beyond dump Trump and extended into an endorsement of an ambitious democratic policy agenda. So I guess my question here is, if we're looking at this through a lens of policy and the policy impacts and also principles too, what would be the implications of this burn it all down mentality that we're seeing from people like the Lincoln Project on young Republicans? What does it say that, is it say our generation is completely gone to the left, there's no room for us in debate anymore? And what are the policy implications for us going to the future? Because it basically gives a blank check to the Democratic Party to move further and further left. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And then I think it's, it's really hard to predict if that's good or bad for for the left. Um, <laughs> you, you, you could make an argument that, um, you know, look, they're, they're going to President Obama, Barack Obama uh, at the John Lewis Memorial suggested getting rid of the filibuster, the legislative filibuster and and making D.C., Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico a state, which would presumably give us four Democratic senators and off to the races you are with all sorts of, of progressive, um, you know, policies. And um, it's, it's unpredictable how that would work out. Right. Like so there's a chance that it would be super exciting to be to be a young progressive and that they would have like this, this amazing moment where they, um, after enduring really decades of, of kind of gridlock and, and stasis that, that they would be, um, you know, passing voting rights and civil rights legislation and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and that success could, could give the left a lot of energy and, and confidence. And you could have like a generation of young people who, um, in the wake of Donald Trump, see that the Democratic Party is is the party of of young people, of, of, of college educated people, of sort of a new generation, and and uh, that would be kind of the worst nightmare. I mean, for those of us who were warning the Republican Party against going this very stupid direction, as I call too dumb to fail. On the other hand, you know, in politics, sometimes winning is losing, and sometimes losing is winning, and and it's you could certainly uh, imagine a scenario where. Democrats um, believe they have a mandate, misinterpret the results of this election as a as a mandate rather than a uh, course correction or a repudiation of Trump, and they go too far and there's a backlash. And you know it was uh, six years between Watergate and Reagan's election, and so you know it's it's kind of hard to say how this will all shake out, but um, but I think there's a a potential for either direction. Yeah, I appreciate those comments. I think that's a really interesting perspective that it could go either way long term. But I just wanted to offer my insights here on the argument and kind of it speaks for the group in a sense that we're generally not on the burn it all down Lincoln Project type train here. And and I think the reason is this. The Lincoln Project is coming out here and saying, you know, we're voting on principles. We're putting the country first. Donald Trump's violating our principles. We need to get him out. And, and at first, that resonated with a lot of people in the anti-Trump camp on, in the party. But coming out and opposing senators like Susan Collins seems a little bit hypocritical to me through that principles lens, because 
to me right now, what it seems like the Lincoln Project is, is a single issue voter on Trump and Trumpism. They're not voting on principles because if they were voting on principles, they wouldn't be supporting or at least, you know, not opposing candidates who stand for the principles and supporting candidates who don't support their principles. I, you know, in other words, the Democrats. So if they're really for principles, why are they promoting advertisements that are going to result in Democratic victories? You know, I'm assuming that's what they're at least that's their intended outcome. I wouldn't say that it's going to have that impact. What What do you think is the messaging there? Do you see any hypocrisy in their take on this principles thing? Because I, I can't really get behind it at this point because my principles are rooted in limited government and freedom of opportunity. So why would I be supporting Democratic candidates who violate that just to to root out Trumpism? Because, you know, I want to repudiate Trump and Trumpism. Do we do we need to go that far? And is that hypocritical? Well, I don't know if it's hypocritical. I do think it is. Um, I mean, I'm I'm with you, as you know, uh, to me, it's just it's just a calculation uh, about what is what is right, what is prudent, what is for the best. You know, I am a conservative. My reason for opposing Trump was not because I wanted to destroy Republicans and conservatism. Uh, it was that I wanted to restore conservatism, that I felt that Trump was a betrayal, that he had co-opted the Republican Party and that he had corrupted it. And uh, although some of the problems preexisted, I do not believe that conservatism is inherently a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. And so um, my goal is is to uh, to restore it and to save it. And I I think that I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but I think that among a lot of never Trumpers, um, there's been an increasing sense that actually um, conservatism was never really that good, that it was inherently flawed. And so increasingly, I feel like some of them, um, you know, they've, they've, ch- they've changed their position. I don't know um, if they're really conservatives trying to restore the party or if they've kind of sided with Democrats. Um, and so I think that's maybe the breakdown. If you believe that conservatism needs to be restored and that uh, it would be a mistake to kind of give the left carte blanche authority to, um, you know, to do whatever. Uh, For me, I mean, for me, like the life issue is a big issue, but, you know, you could talk about taxes and fracking and and there's a lot of areas where, you know, I I think Joe Biden is is probably a more decent person than Donald Trump, but... um, but I don't necessarily want to give the left unfettered, you know, authority to pass everything that that they want to do that would be part of their agenda. Uh, I, I would like there to be a check and balance. And look, you know, I I don't think Cory Gardner or Susan Collins are, um, you know, profiles in courage. I, I don't think that they're the most like courageous, you know, politicians in the world. But I but I also don't think they're evil Trumpist either. And um, so I think in a way it's a, it's a pragmatic position that I'm taking here. Um, but it depends on what your principles are. I mean, you know, I think in fairness to the project, the, the Lincoln Project folks, you know, if, if you believe, if you believe that Donald Trump is Hitler and that he is an existential threat to America, um, then I think you can you can put together a case that like it's sort of like when America 
allied with Joseph Stalin and the Soviets in order to beat to beat Hitler, right? I mean, that's kind of what they're arguing. Um, you know, to me though, I think the uh, the real questionable thing is I don't know if you saw, but um, but in, in in the Washington Post uh, with with an interview with Craig Sargent, um, John Weaver, who uh, I hope he's doing well. I I think I read on Twitter he was in the hospital, but um, but a week or so ago he said that you know not only were they working to to elect Biden, but that they would work to um, attack Republicans if they sought to stymie some of Biden's agenda. Uh, it just seems like a questionable thing to do if your goal is to restore conservatism. And it most definitely, I mean, is. It's it's doesn't seem like the conservative principles from their group are kind of uh, the main focus rather than just defeating Trump. And they kind of don't know where to go from there. So I have a question about like, you know, the burning it all down mentality. And I think we've kind of touched on this. But I almost think that there's actually three camps. There's the people, you know, who think that everything's fine right now. And I would consider more of those like the Trumpers. And then there's people, I think, like us who realize there's an issue with the Trumpism and the Trump mentality. But necessarily, that isn't deep rooted in the whole Republican Party. And then there's people who are much more about getting rid of everything. So I kind of see it as like you have a house and you have a foundation. Um, the Trumpers kind of want to keep that house and that foundation and grow upon that. We kind of want to say, you know, let's rebuild the house, but the foundation's fine. But I almost think that the Lincoln Project is like, let's completely rebuild the foundation, which is dangerous to the future of conservatism. Yeah. It's if we rebuild the foundation, is it really conservatism still? Well, and look, I mean, I think, I don't want to say the irony because it's maybe it's not ironic. Maybe it's just like on the nose. But I mean, <laughs> you know, the premise of Burkean conservatism, and I would encourage everyone who hasn't read the book. I mean, there's Yuval Levin has a, a book called The Great Debate, which is about Edmund Burke versus Thomas Paine. And, you know, it's sort of uh, one could say that, that that debate defined the left and the right. You know, uh, Paine believed you could remake the world. And so he supported the French Revolution, which basically wanted to burn it all down, get rid of the church, get rid of every preconceived notion, um, not just the monarchy, but but just destroy everything. Uh, and 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 then the Burkean argument is 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 premised on, you know, what Jonah Goldberg, you know, calls a miracle, like the fact that we have a civilization is is a miracle and 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 civilization is very is very fragile and it evolved over a long period of time um and uh with small sort of little changes that happened and trial and error and um this is worth the fighting for it's not something you want to just toss out and try to reinvent because who knows how long that would take and and it could go a lot of different directions so, look, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm sure there is a time when your house, like literally you may have a house that needs to be torn down <laughs> and you start over. Like, I'm not saying that like a political party is um, of the same level of importance as civilization itself, but I do see a parallel here. Um, you know, the conservative movement and the Republican Party, uh, there have been a lot 
of things that go into it. And, and I'm just cautious about throwing all those things out, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. I would rather try to reform it. And, um, and I think that that's a, con- I think reform is a conservative impulse and revolution is not. And I think the, these, the people who want to burn it all down are basically revolutionaries. They are actually very much like Donald Trump. You know, they're, they, they talk like Trump, they act like Trump, and their instinct to burn it all down, I think, is, is, is a kind of a Trumpian revolutionary, non, uncon, kind of an unconservative instinct. And so I think that's an interesting uh, development. Yeah, so I want to look at this through a different lens for a second. We're talking a lot about the party and the more real impacts, the principles, the policies, the changing demographics of voters and all that. That's what we've covered. But as a lot of people know that listen to this podcast, a big thing we talk about at Gen Z GOP is discourse, and and especially from the country level. We think that the state of political discourse right now is very poor. There's a lot of gaslighting, people relying too much on cable news commentary. And you know, that's a big reason I'm reading all these quotes is because I want to encourage people to actually read their commentary instead of just listen to it. So just to be devil's advocate for a second, you know, I'm clearly not on the burning it all down side, but there was a very interesting quote from Mona Sharon's piece in the bulwark that I, that kind of touched a nerve with me because I think my biggest problem as of late with the Trump presidency has really been its attack on American norms and institutions. You know, these democratic institutions that uphold what this country stands for, you know, this independent judiciary, listening to foreign policy advisors, a a range of things. So when she's responding to David French specifically, she writes, it's not burning it all down. It's the legal constitutional way to express approval or disapproval. The current Republican Party has itself chosen to become the arsonist party that has decided to go along with undermining faith in institutions, shredding norms, elevating conspiracy theories, disregarding laws, and tossing aside truth whenever the leader dictates. The most demoralizing aspect of the past four years has not been that Aboub Khan man was elected president, but that one of the two great political parties surrendered to him utterly. So I think what I'm trying to get at here is that we recognize this awful state of discourse as a long-term issue, a potential long-term issue, if it's going to continue this way. We're not even debating policy anymore. We're debating what the facts are in the first place. So I'm sympathetic in a very mild way to kind of hitting the reset button because I don't want to be in a party that's pushing this anti-vaxxer nonsense and all of that and these conspiracy theories, you know, QAnon and the like. So what do we have to do as a party to kind of rid ourselves of this conspiracy theory fanaticism? Because that's really going to have a dreadful impact on the country long term, especially for people in Gen Z, because, you know, the the American institutions are built off discourse that is constructive and focused on policy debates. So, Matt, what level of hitting the reset button do we need? Well, look, I'm not convinced that um, that losing the Senate uh, is going to do anything um, to get rid of the QAnon people or the the conspiracy theory people. In fact, I think it could actually empower them and embolden them. You, you noted earlier that you can end up with a smaller, Trumpier. If you get rid of Susan Collins and, and Cory Gardner, um, you're not going to get rid of the most Trumpy senators and you're not going to get rid of the conspiracy theorists. Um, what you are going to do is, 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 uh, is, is make me uh, just sort of as an individual um, 
go from like being governed by Trump to go to, you know, potential that the Democrats could engage in their own sort of authoritarian power grab, um, you know, which would entail, as, as Obama wants to do, getting rid of the legislative filibuster could entail um, uh, statehood for uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico. I mean, which in and of itself, especially Puerto Rico, I'm, I'm kind of open to um, D.C., I have a different feeling about, um, but Puerto Rico, I think it's even part of the Republican platform or has been that they should have statehood if they want it. But the problem is, you know, Obama kind of wants to do it, you know, for political reasons to add specifically to add a Democratic senator. So it's basically a rigging of the rules. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are, and I'm not talking about fringe people, but just there's a lot of talk about packing the Supreme Court as revenge against what McConnell did to Merrick Garland, um, which you could argue was in revenge to what Democrats did to <laughs> Robert Bork and and uh, and others. Uh, so basically, we're in this cycle of revenge, and, and you could end up with Democrats doing things like packing the court if, if they have um, undivided power. So that's, you know, I'm basically making a pragmatic case uh, that we should not go from one kind of party that's authoritarian to another. I would rather have our system of checks and balances kind of um, mitigate against that. Uh, I don't have a good answer, though, to how we can um, really change the culture in America and in on the right. I won't call it conservatism, but on the right. I think the one thing we can control is what we as individuals do. Um, so I'm a fan of William Wilberforce, you know, and like one of his big projects, well, his, his, his main project was, was getting rid of slavery in Great Britain, but his other project was what he called the restoration of manners. And I think that speaks to, um, to sort of what you guys are, are talking about. I mean, these were, you know, things like, uh, profanity, immorality, brothels, um, the exploitation of, of people. Um, as well. Um, and so, you know, he started a, um, a group to, to fight against that. And it was his entire life was devoted to these two great causes, uh, stopping the slave trade and the restoration of manners. And, um, it's something it he devoted a lifetime to. And, and sadly, I think that Similarly, I don't have a great idea other than for us to do our part and to uh, to take on this battle. And I think it's going to fall to people who are your age, um, who have the energy and um, who haven't been beaten down so yet, yet so much to, uh, to champion these issues if we're going to fix this problem. And that's a really good segue into what I wanted to end on. You, you'd mentioned to me privately that you are not... You, you haven't really been on the activism side. Um, you've been more in the blogosphere. You've been, you know, writing and interviewing political figures. And I just wanted to to hear from you what advice you may have for us as we try and, you know, create a, a palatable alternative to the left uh, for young people as we move forward. Um. So, you know, actually I did at one point, I kind of was an activist um, and an operative many years ago. That's how I got started in this. But um, 
but I transitioned to journalism to like opinion journalism. And, and when I did that, I, um, you know, there's some people who kind of try to wear multiple hats, but I just felt that, that it was kind of like crossing a Rubicon, um, for me that basically, you know, the deliverable I had as a writer was to tell the truth as I saw it. And, and it's, it's kind of hard to do that if you think you're also going to be involved in politics. Um, because there could be like consequences. So, you know, I haven't been thinking as an operative or even as an activist um, for many, many years. Um, but again, it, it, it's, and I'm not sure why this is. I have a hard time, I have a hard time thinking collectively. And maybe this speaks to the fact that I am a conservative, but I, I really see it as an individual pursuit. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, I, I see th things uh, through that lens. I guess I'm, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a, you know, maybe not the, the best organi organizer, um, but I see things through like, what can we do as individuals? And so I think, I definitely think, and then if, if, if every individual does that, or if a lot of individuals do that, then um, then you have a tipping point and you could have a movement. And so I think it, it's, it's part of it is just incumbent upon us to just do everything we can, whether that's to run for office and hold yourself to the highest standards um, and to uh, stand on principle, or whether that is challenging yourself to um, to read more and to become educated um, and whatever it is you want to do, philosophy, policy, to just have the facts. Maybe that is um, actually being more um, sacrificial in terms of your activism, volunteering, you know, instead of just talking about an issue, uh, a soup kitchen or a crisis pregnancy center or, or whatever, um, but just kind of uh, be the change that you want that's kind of my best advice. And, 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 uh, look, there are, there are people out there who are very smart about building institutions and organizations. And like, it's super important to do that. Um, and, and building movements. It's not really how I think for me, I just, I, I would call upon all of us to, you know, work on ourselves and be the change. And, and that's kind of, that's kind of what I've tried to do as best as I can. Uh, and, and with my column, um, you know, there's a, an, I think it's true. Uh, I think it's Tom Stoppard, I think was his name, uh, who wrote in the novel, you know, writers can't change the world. Sometimes we can nudge it a little bit. And so I don't have any like grand, I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not delusional to think that, that my writing is going to make that big of a difference. But every time I write something, I hope there's always the hope, right? That, that you could just nudge the world a little bit. And I think I've helped just in this, like I said, I, I so many people have engaged in this debate now. Um, David French and, and, and Kevin Williamson and, and Mona and Ramesh and Charlie Sykes and Jonathan V. Last. And um, I believe I kicked this one off. And so, uh, <laughs> and I think it's good to have these debates and discussions about the future of the party. And wherever it shakes out, I think it's healthier that we've had this intellectual exercise. So 
again, I don't think it's going to dramatically change things, but maybe it'll nudge him a little bit. And, and you're exactly right. I think that this debate that we've talked about at length today is a really good representation of where we can be with uh, nuanced debate and proper discourse. So uh, I just wanted yeah, and to I say- think it's been, and, and I think well, that last point is, is really valid. I mean, maybe this will descend into some really ugly uh, internecine fighting, but, but so far, you know, I went on the, uh, the Bulwark podcast with Charlie Sykes and we debated this and we see it differently, uh, he and I, but um, I think it was very cordial. And so I think that's a really, um, that's a really positive development. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, yeah, you don't need to throw stones to, uh, to have a conversation with respect. So I just wanted to say thank you to you uh, for, for coming on our podcast. And like you said, we're going to continue to nudge. It might not be, uh, you know, <laughs> to quote Elizabeth Warren, it might not be big structural change, but it might be a, a, a movement in the right direction. And we're going to continue to do that. Uh, we're very thankful for your voice uh, and your perspective. Um, I just before we sign off here, I just want to plug our social media and our website. Uh, if you want to sign up for our movement, go to genzgop.org and be uh, be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter for both our podcast and our organization as a whole are at genzgoporg and at genzgoppod. Thanks so much, everybody, and have a good week. Thank you.